Hello, and welcome to FinTech Impact. I'm your host, Jason Pereira. Today on the show, we have Adrian Tricani, founder and CEO of Medico. Medico is a company that enables traditional financial institutions to offer best-in-class blockchain solutions to their client base. And with that, here's my interview with Adrian. Hello, Adrian. Hello, Jason. Thanks for taking the time today. Thank you. So Adrian Tikani, a founder and CEO of Medico. Tell us about Medico. Well, you know, Medico is a, is a Swiss company based in Lausanne. We are specialized in institutional solutions for the management of digital assets. And uh, I mean this you know, in a very broad sense. So it covers cryptocurrencies, uh, smart contract technologies, blockchain, but all with the aim to facilitate its use uh, by banks, asset managers, exchanges that are getting into this, uh, this new economy. Excellent. So we'll jump into all of that. Uh, we also happen to be recording this around the time that Bitcoin's what at, what's it at right now? Like 31,600. Uh, so on a, on a big run. So tell us about the foundation of Medico. Uh, what, brought, what brought about the, uh, the genesis of it? Well, you know, I've been personally involved in the crypto community since uh, 2012. And uh, at that time, Bitcoin was the only really relevant uh, cryptocurrency out there uh, with a tiny market capitalization, but still number one, obviously. And uh, the ecosystem was totally underdeveloped. Uh, in particular, if you wanted to buy Bitcoins, you would have to go on pretty strange exchanges that would not be so trustworthy. Uh, many of them actually went bankrupt or got hacked or lost part of their assets under management. But beyond that, just to store and transfer your assets, the wallet ecosystem was really far from being ready for mass adoption. I think but since then, the market has improved a lot. You see today many mobile applications and, and custody services uh, for retail users, which uh, I think are absolutely convincing and have uh, interesting, good practices, et cetera. But what we saw coming uh, in, in 2015 uh, was the potential for the banking industry and in the institutions, in the financial institution in general, to get involved uh, with cryptocurrencies and to have uh, a significant role to play in this uh, industry. And uh, what we've seen since then is uh, that actually this prediction or this feeling was confirmed by the markets. Uh, it feels that uh, most investors in cryptocurrencies, whether they are retail or whether they are institutional themselves, are looking for professional third parties, which they can trust uh, to manage their coins with a high degree of uh, competence and, and trust. So this is really where Medaco is positioned. We uh, support banks and financial institutions that would like to offer such services, see a market opportunity offering such services. And as you can imagine, in the last uh, eight to nine years, and particularly looking just at the last uh, six weeks, uh, the crypto bull market has been so strong overall that market adoption by the banking industry is becoming significant and much more significant than what we originally anticipated uh, considering the, all of the frictions, whether regulatory, whether in terms of technology or simply of market demand. So I think now is a very strong uh, market timing. Adoption is, is rising both on the retail and institutional side. And um, Medaco is, is really here to support banks getting into this market. Excellent. So that's about a number of issues there. So trust, professionalism, all kinds of other barriers there. So what were the biggest factors you saw as preventing these institutions from getting into crypto? And how did you solve for them? Well, I think that's the main frictions you have to, to, to work with cryptocurrency. Well, let me start this again. Well, I think the main frictions that uh, have been out there for, for many years for the banking industry to adopt cryptocurrencies were the regulation on one side, the infrastructure or the lack of infrastructure thereof, and potentially the lack of demand. If you consider all of the th these three aspects, they're all, I would say, 
at a point where the maturity is, is sufficient that uh, there are no longer friction. Regulation in most countries have been proactively supporting the cryptocurrency evolution, whether it's in Switzerland, Germany, Singapore, and now more lately in the US. Very much possible now for banks to get involved and offer crypto services. On the technology side, I would say, well, a bank starting in 2015 was possible, but to be honest, the it was uh, potentially dangerous in many regards. The, the infrastructure wasn't ready for a prime time for mass adoption. But, you know, we're now 2021. Companies like Medical have been on the market for many years. We have some of the largest banks working on our, relying on our platform for services with hundreds of millions or billions of assets under management. That's also something which is solved. The last point really is about market demands. And uh, can you as a bank justify, uh, you know, build a business case where you can expect to make money out of it in the coming two years and not in the, in the next five years with uh, some fancy project about tokenization, for instance. And uh, I would argue that three, four years ago would have been hard to make a case for a bank in this uh, uh, environment. Doesn't mean it was not possible. Actually, we, we know several banks which, uh, for which this became a significant uh, profit center in 2016 and 2017. However, this was a hard sell to the top management, to, to, to the board. In 2020 and 2021, I think changed, uh, things have changed substantially. And uh, it is clear that there is demand, whether it's on the private wealth management uh, side or whether it's on the institutional, there is demand uh, coming to the bank. And uh, it's no longer a question of uh, whether you should consider this and whether it's a risk to consider it in terms of uh, becoming profitable. It's more a question of when should we do it? Should we start now and be ready next year? Or should we wait and potentially be too late on the market? Fair enough. I mean, yeah, I would, I would say that it's definitely evolved to the point where it's less about what are the fears of hacking or the ability to access this stuff and kind of the foundational infrastructural questions more so now there are questions of merit or risk tolerance or basic speculation on on the direction of the current of whatever cryptocurrency we're talking about in general. So yeah, it's definitely evolved since then. And as you said, we've seen a number of regulatory changes around the world that have led to, um, led to I, I would say, validation of a lot of these as an asset class. Okay, so talk to me about your solution when you go in and deal with a bank. So bank or traditional financial institution comes to you and says, look, we're really interested in having some sort of service offering in this. We don't know where to start. How does that process work with you? Uh, Medical, we have tried to make it so smooth that it can feel like a traditional asset class to the bank. Of course, it, it will never be a, a usual asset class in the sense that the, the technology is very different. The, uh, foundations of cryptocurrencies and digital assets are different. You have uh, significant differences like the fact that it relies on cryptography, that the consensus algorithm or the, what, are, what we call the finality of the transaction is, uh, is never absolute. So these things make it very different inherently to what the bank is used to working with. However, the role of a company like Medaco is to make it look like it is a traditional asset and, and to remove this technological barrier which uh, banks have been facing when, for, for those of, the, uh, of them that tried to start uh, a few years ago. So Medaco is really about providing a complete infrastructure, let's call an operating system uh, for digital assets, which uh, uh, secures the keys, secures the processing, the processes around these keys. How do you authorize transactions? How do you manage the governance of the comp of the whole system? And making sure that this is connected and connectable to the ecosystem of services that uh, that you need to operate this in production as a bank, uh, such as uh, compliance services, liquidity services, connection to your core banking, etc. So I would say we've been very strong in that uh, in that field, uh, having a special, a very unique way of dealing with uh, secret keys. And just for the for the context, uh, I want to re- remind that uh, keys are how you secure your cryptocurrencies. 
this is the sort of password you use, unlock your phones and, and create a transaction getting out of your wallet. So it is critical to be able to secure it uh, properly. Uh, but we've also, I think, built our products around this uh, very specific aspect that is about governance. Uh, governance, we think, is really where the weak point is in pretty much everything on the market today. Generally, you don't get your keys hacked. What gets, what gets hacked is who can access the key in the company, whether it's the CEO, oh. the founder, or a combination of people. You must make sure that not only the key is secure in some specialty from hardware or with some NPC technology, but the way you access this key to process the transaction is also secure and you distribute this trust. I would say this is really where Metaco is so different. We have uh, taken the best from existing banking models and brought that for digital assets, so that you can bring this governance to interact with smart contracts, with uh, equity tokens, with cryptocurrencies, seamlessly and with a high degree of trust. Now, I've got to think from, there's a couple of angles to look at this from. Um, I, look, I think about the from the regulatory angle, at least from a from the legal angle. I got to think that the regulators must partially want to see this happen solely because it brings it out of the cold, right? Like a lot of the crypto transactions happened on things that were not necessarily on the radar or following proper anti-money laundering procedures by by legitimizing it and using traditional line infrastructure or, or infrastructure providers. We're bringing this out of the cold and putting it on the radar of governments, which I know would make some crypto enthusiasts shudder at the thought of that, but mass adoption is going to lead to that anyway. So are you seeing, like, am I right on that? Are, are you seeing a willingness because essentially they just don't want this becoming some sort of long-term black market solution? That's an interesting point. Uh, I would say that, uh, first of all, yes, that's right. The fact that banks are getting involved uh, certainly attracts the attention of, of governments. And uh, I think this, uh, this has upside and downside. First of all, if you are a Bitcoin maximalist and, and libertarian, you would probably argue that uh, just true banks, we don't need them. We can do everything without them. Even Coinbase or the, the sort of centralized custodians are too much. I need a USB stick in my basement and this is enough for me to store and manage Bitcoin. Uh, although that may be true for people like you and I, because we have the know-how, uh, we potentially have the infrastructure and uh, we have the experience. I would argue that to think about mass adoption of Bitcoin in cryptocurrencies and digital assets is unthinkable if the only option we have is uh, to work to be our own bank, so to have uh, the coins on a mobile phone or on a USB stick. So it has been obvious that some solutions, uh, whether they are fully centralized or partially centralized, like uh, custody services, would become uh, important in this in this ecosystem. I think there are options to decentralize this with uh, multi-party computation or with consortiums of custodians. But the point, the fact of the matter is. Uh, Having some degree of optional centralization is a comfort that most investors will ask for. If you just look at what's happening today on the market, most investors are using companies like services like Coinbase or, uh, I don't know, Gemini or Bitcoin Swiss, which are centralized uh, brokers and, and custody providers, which in the end very much look like banks, uh, despite the fact that uh, most of the time they don't have a banking license. And uh, I would say that just looking at what's happening today and the and where the investors want to go, which is to, to go with a trusted third party. I think it is natural that banks are moving in this ecosystem and the upside is that it brings attention and it brings new capital inflows, it brings uh, more visibility and, and therefore we tend to see the price going up or demand going up as banks get involved. The downside obviously is that we're speaking here about highly regulated companies which are extremely risk averse and uh, which involve uh, regulators and, uh, and auditors at every step of the way. Uh, so we can only expect that this will bring also more of the more negative attention to the coins where uh, the market could become more regulated. Uh, potentially, all of these banks will have to um, align around uh, travel rules, uh, which we already see in most jurisdictions, which remove a bit the initial ambition of Bitcoin, which is to be an anonymous uh, anarchist <laughs> sort of way of storing value and transferring value. 
Yeah, uh, there's definitely two camps on that one. Okay, so that's, that's a good point there. Let's go back to the actual governance system. So we've got some obvious failures of governance. I mean, being in Canada, I'm not sure how familiar, you're not in Canada, but I'm not sure how familiar you are with the Quadriga scandal. <laughs> but, but there you go. That's talking about a failure of governance. And you know, we can speculate as to whether or not the guy's alive on some secret island somewhere. But the point is having one person with control over the keys is not a smart thing because what happens if that one person goes? So I take it. So what you've done is you built a system of hierarchies and permissions and where basically that gives people access. Like how, or am I wrong? How does it work? Oh, no, that's absolutely correct. I mean, uh, it's interesting that you mentioned this example. I think it's, a, it's an incredible illustration of this issue around governance. And I'm about to publish a, a book on, on blockchain technology. And uh, this, in one of the security chapters, uh, the example I, I, I present is precisely the one with Frederica, because this is the perfect example where the keys are potentially perfectly secure from, uh, from thieves and hackers, because they may be you know, uh, encrypted with a strong password. But then you ask yourself the question, who is owning this password? Who is in control of this password? And who has the, who has the capability to go in the basement in this big vault, open the door, and use the password to extract the key? And in that case, that was a single guy, right? <laughs> the founder of the company. And you realize that then the weak point of the company and the custody infrastructure is no longer the key itself. It is the guy that has access to the key because it's too centralized. And so the real strength of a solution like, uh, like Silo, which is our main product at Metacorp, is to provide a solid framework to decentralize this trust and decentralize this control capability around multiple parties and to do it in a such a fine-grained fine -grained, uh, framework that um, every, any action that you take in the system, whether it's managing users, um, managing wallets, managing transactions, calling a smart contract to pay dividends or things like this, every of these actions can be controlled with this appropriate decentralization again. So you can always guarantee that, uh, I don't know, put yourself in the shoes of a central bank minting coin. Well, if the central bank is minting 1,000 euro or 1,000 dollar, uh, potentially the authorization protocol will be simpler that if the central bank is printing 1 billion coins. And uh, this is the kind of logic that uh, our solution enforces. But of course, it is one of the components of the solution as a whole, which also covers you know, connection to the ledgers, key management, connection to the core banking, and everything else that a bank needs to operate such an infrastructure. Excellent. So talk to me about the book you're writing. What, uh, <laughs> besides being about crypto, what's the storyline? <laughs> yeah. So I think that there are already quite a few books on Bitcoin or Ethereum or on blockchain technology generally. But uh, I also see that uh, I think two things were missing. One is um, a book which has a more academic point of view in the sense that it covers cryptocurrencies, blockchain, not only from a purely technical point of view or from a purely economical point of view, but has a very horizontal view of uh, where, why has Bitcoin appeared, or what is the history of money, why is it so relevant today, what are the pros and cons uh, of centralization, decentralization. And that starts really with um, economic foundations and moves towards more and more technical considerations about how Bitcoin works, specifically Ethereum, and it up with really a quantitative analysis, analysis also of the, of the market itself. So this uh, A to Z of, the, of blockchain and cryptocurrencies to be used as a as a source of information for somebody that may not know anything about this market, uh, but at the same time that may not want to become the first software developer of Bitcoin or, or, or Ethereum. So I think this is, there is a big gap in the market today, and that, that was uh, the main goal. And the second goal was to also provide a more, let's say, neutral assessment and analysis of cryptocurrencies, neutral in the sense of uh, less biased, because although I'm uh, personally a big fan of cryptocurrencies and uh, I'm certainly kind of a libertarian, you know, that, likes, like, like, that is preaching freedom and, and loves Bitcoin for, 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 for its qualities, I also think that um, some 
promoters and evangelists of Bitcoin cryptocurrencies may be only seeing one side of the coin. And I think in a book, uh, there is an opportunity to, yeah, there is an opportunity to actually show both sides of the coin. And this is what I aim to do in here. So that's where you are today. Where do you see this going? Like, where are your clients pushing you? Like, what direction are they basically saying you need to, you need to move in? I mean, look, today um, we have, uh, we're lucky enough that we are in, we're based in Switzerland where the banking market is uh, very well developed. But at the same time, we also see that uh, crypto is, uh, is moving fast in the UK, surprisingly, but in Germany, in Singapore, other markets like France are, are opening up, the US are opening up. And uh, we see Medaco as being a very international company, although based from you know, in Europe, in this small country, I think we have the the arms and the experience and the reach to grow and to grow very fast and to be number one in this market that we already are today. So the, the ambition here is to not just limit ourselves to dealing with cryptocurrencies, which we think are the number one use case today, uh, but to make sure that we are able to promote innovation in this field as a whole, whether it's uh, decentralized finance with uh, tokenization, distributed autonomous organizations, all of these new use cases, which I think are Highly interesting from a speculation point of view today, but uh, maybe still missing the real adoption of these new principles for maybe UX reasons. But I think will become so relevant in our life in the next five years that we can't imagine a future where banks are not compatible with such services. So this is our ambition today that uh, we don't wait for banks to tell us that they want uh, a new coin like Polkadot or uh, whatever, Cardano or another coin on the market. We come to them and say, this is where we're going and this is where you should look uh, for the future of your services. So to date, I mean, what it sounds like is you're looking, this is still being looked at primarily as an investment asset class. I mean, are you seeing much transactional volume at all? Or is that, is that still kind of a secondary reason for purchase of, uh, of any kind of crypto token? Oh, that's interesting. I would say if that were the case, Medaco would not be the first company to see it because um, our clients may, or the banks may potentially use off-chain transactions for, uh, or for payments where they don't have to write that on the chain. Uh, reason being that the fees are potentially high, that the settlement is potentially slow on chain. So, you know, the confirmation time for those of you who know about the, the, the blockchain technology. So I would say at this stage, we do not see a strong adoption of cryptocurrencies for payment. However, I'm, I'm convinced that uh, this will come at some point. It's mostly related to providing faster and cheaper capability to uh, transact with cryptocurrencies. And this may come with off-chain transactions like the Lightning Network on Bitcoin or with some form of a massive scalability improvements with Ethereum, like sharding or the other capabilities that are being permitted with Ethereum 2.0. I just think we are a bit early for this. And uh, the truth is, when you have a deflationary market, or at least a market which is uh, appreciating as fast as we see today, with uh, you know impressive and unequal performance, uh, like in the last uh, uh, two months, why would you want to use this asset to to buy a piece of bread or to buy a new computer? Yeah. Well, it I depends on what country you're in, right? I always say, like, you know, it, it, currency volatility is, is really the, is the variable, right? Like, if you're if you can't trust your domestic currency for transactions or store of value, then you're probably going to trust. It's like as, as I said, you know, you may think a big a big swing in Bitcoin of sixty percent is a lot. Well, if you're a currency that basically could swing eighty to ninety percent in a year because of governance or whatever it is, you might think it's more secure. Oh, I mean, absolutely. But don't get me wrong. My argument was pretty much the other way around. It was to say that uh, with a coin which uh, has the, the, the potential to appreciate or to gain value and to deflate in a way, so to, to go from, from 10K to 30K as we think with Bitcoin, uh, there is a 
a natural incentive to keep it and hodl as Bitcoin Bitcoiners would say, mm-hmm. rather than use it to to pay. But sure, I understand that in economies where the fiat currency, the national currency, is uh, inflationary or potentially hyperinflating, in the end you prefer only storing your wealth with Bitcoin and also use it to to pay. But uh, I, yeah. I would argue that even in these countries, uh, in particular in these countries, you would be tempted to reinvest in Bitcoin as much as you spend for day-to-day day-to-day payments. Yeah, no one wants to be remembered as the guy who bought pizzas with Bitcoin. That's for sure. <laughs> so uh, before we wrap up, there's three questions I ask everyone. And the first one is, if you had one wish or something you could change in your company or in the industry as a whole, what would it be? So if there was something I could change uh, in the industry as a whole, is uh, I'm thinking the market has has been so impressive in the in how it has evolved in the last 10 years that it's hard for me to think about what I could have done, done differently. But I would say, as a libertarian or somebody that likes freedom, I'm still cautious and anxious, I would even argue, with uh, uh, the regulators coming in this market. And uh, of course, it was uh, anticipated and it was expectable, uh, expected. And I think it's still sustainable the way regulators have approached cryptocurrencies. But I'm concerned that in, la- in the next five years, in particular, when cryptocurrencies have such a large market cap that they become a threat to central banks and national currencies that the potentially regulators and governments themselves may become extremely offensive uh, in the way they uh, regulate or potentially even confiscate uh, cryptocurrencies. We've seen in the past, we've seen it with gold, for instance, uh, 100 years ago. Once your currency is no longer trusted and people fly away to gold or other kind of more trusted assets, uh, how do governments and regulators act? Well, they, they ban it and they confiscate it. Yeah, potentially. I also think that the, uh, I think a lot of this starts and ends with tax revenue. You know, when the IRS is apparently adding a uh, line on crypto transactions to the tax return this year. And frankly, you know, every time I heard someone say something effective, yeah, I don't have to pay taxes on these transactions. I'm like, excuse me? Like, no, that's not right. <laughs> and, you know, keep that up and we'll see how this ends. And, you know, I'm sure you've heard the term before where, where some regulators referred, not regulators, uh, regulators but uh, law enforcement individuals referred to crypto as, as prosecution futures. Because just because you have an anonymous key doesn't mean they're not going to figure out who that anonymous key is in the future. <laughs> yeah. So the uh, second question I have for you is what's been the biggest challenge in the company to where it is today? I mean, look, we when we started in 2015, we had this clear vision that the world was going to be tokenized. And uh, if you think about it in 2015, that was uh, maybe something that a few people thought about the future, but uh, nobody really seriously was considering tokenization of equities or, or national currencies or any other asset whatsoever. And, you know, I was here on stage and my colleagues were on stage, you know, pitching the idea that everything would be tokenized and that for this you would need infrastructure, which Metaco could provide. Uh, but the biggest challenge that what we were two years too, too early. In 2015, everybody was laughing about that, this idea. And this is only in 2017, I would say during the rise of ICOs, that the idea of tokenizing equities, bonds, whatever kind of non bankable asset, that tokenization became something and that banks started to prepare POCs, started to prepare MVPs, and, and actually confirmed that the tokenization was something significant. But what we also realized is that uh, although cryptocurrencies, or cryptocurrencies, you have an immediate use case. As a bank, you can build your infrastructure and then sell a custody slash trading service based on cryptocurrencies, and you can potentially generate significant revenues with it. Although with tokenization, this is a very long-term game because there is this uh, ecosystem play here. Is If you're the only bank on the market tokenizing something and there is no other compatible bank on the market, no secondary markets, no payment infrastructure, well, you can be sure that your thing is useless. And uh, everywhere you have an ecosystem play, uh, it takes a long time. And because there is inertia, you need to change, uh, change minds, you need to change habits. And we had not planned for it. 
So I would say a big part of our strategy in 2015 was around uh, providing infrastructure for tokens and for tokenization. And uh, you know, we had to accept the fact that we were too early and uh, whatever the quality of our solution, nobody was here to pay and uh, to, to, to buy it. And so we focused the company in 2017 on custody and the management of digital assets in general and, and less specifically about uh, tokenization. And that was a, a huge win for us. Yeah, I mean, you know, you talk about the timeline for this. I look at this like any adoption curve or any any development of any industry, right? Same thing with like the dot-com bubble. The very, very, you know, how much foolishness and ridiculousness was there in the early stages of the dot-com era? And when people saw Bitcoin get sliced down back to 5,000 and saying, oh, well, it's all over. I'm like, no, the dot-com bubble blowing up did not invalidate the, the saliency or the validity of the concept of the internet. It just kind of cleared out all the nonsense hype. And then we went through a cycle of two decades of development with further hiccups and starts and stops along the way. Right? I think we've, we've gone through the early, the very early adopter hype cycle nonsense of, of blockchain. And I said it before on this podcast, but what's, what's very interesting is to see is that the conversations I was having two to three years ago were all like, oh yeah, we're going to do all this. And it's like, where are you? Well, we started, we have two lines of code. And it's like, come on, man, like, <laughs> there's, there's a long way to go, right? Whereas now the conversations I, I'm having is like, oh no, no, this is what it actually does. It's actually implemented in handling these things. And yeah, we're now moving on to larger and larger Fortune 500 or whatever it might be companies. And, you know, so we're starting to see the promise of blockchain delivered. And I mean, any Anyone who, who laughed at the concept of tokenizing asset classes just didn't understand, like, how is that laughable to, to you? If you understand how poorly handled this, the administration or the reconciliation of assets are currently, how do you not see blockchain as an infinitely superior solution to those problems, let alone the ability to basically fractionalize ownership and how empowering that can be. And lo and behold, what's the big trend in US investing these days? It is through various custodians, fractionalization of ownership. I don't need $1,000 to buy whatever stock that's trading at that that number. I just need five bucks. And I now I own a percentage of it. So just it was ahead of its time, but not for those of us who saw the problems. Uh, it was definitely <laughs> the solution. Yeah, so the last question I have for you is what excites you the most about what it is you're working on and gets you up in the morning to keep fighting a good fight? I mean, look, I'm one of these skeptical people about the way uh, the economy is designed today, the way central banks work, the way money is printed, the way we have to rely on dozens of intermediaries for a simple transaction, the way we cannot uh, transact during the weekend because it is off business hours. So I'm, I'm extremely skeptical about it. And I, I don't see the competition provided by what's what's left of, of the free market to actually operate efficiently efficiently that uh, it solves these inefficiencies and uh, the invention of bitcoin was the first weapon uh, to really threaten the this uh, financial industry and say well look you have to improve you have to innovate otherwise you're going to be eaten by something which is open and decentralized and uh, the, the fact that Medaco today is actually in between these two worlds in between this strong force which doesn't need the government approval doesn't need the bank uh, really bank adoption uh, it, it works by itself, this Bitcoin network or crypto net uh, ecosystem, which uh, is total, totally autonomous and uh, self-sufficient, that we're between this and this highly regulated and to some degree antiquated uh, uh, industry that is the financial industry, which has not changed so much in the last 20 to 30 years. And we have the opportunity to bridge these two worlds and uh, make sure that as an end user, I now have access to the best of both, which is to exploit these new technologies, get uh, ex uh, financial exposure to these great asset classes, potentially get more efficiency in, in transacting uh, tokens or, or, or value. 
But at the same time, I can use services which are well-connected internationally that uh, have services which I'm used to using without changing all of my habits. I think Metaco is uh, extremely exciting to be in between and to be seeing how completely new paradigm can be adopted by many users without even knowing that uh, the foundations are completely different just because uh, user experience was properly implemented. And I think, you know, it's interesting. I say that all the time is that the reality is, is that we're talking about all this now because it's a way to speculate and make money off it. But at the end of the day, the real future down the road is, yeah, you'll understand a couple of things are crypto tokens, but the rest of it will be like TCP IP. Like it'll be a protocol running in the background that you have no idea how it's powered and you don't care, right? Like you don't care. You don't, you don't care that's a tokenized version of a stock. You just know that you bought the stock. Like why, why does the, why does the protocol matter in the end? The only thing is this, you know, this underlying tokenization creates scarcity. So therefore the speculation, there's, there's value to that scarcity. That's the only unifying difference here. So Adrian, thank you very much for taking the time. I appreciate this. And it's glad, you know, like I said, it's it's very interesting to see the development over time of how, of how crypto has gone from this incredible hyped technology to things that are actually coming to fruition. And um, I guess I get I get the, the privilege of cataloging that in real time. <laughs> so uh, I appreciate you sharing your insights. Thanks for the opportunity, Jason. My pleasure. So that was my interview with Adrian Chikani. I hope you enjoyed that. And I hope uh, you're, if you've been listening from the beginning, you're enjoying this journey of seeing blockchain basically slowly reach its full potential. As always, if you enjoyed this podcast, please review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever's in your podcast. Until next time, take care. This podcast was brought to you by Woodgate Financial, an award-winning financial planning firm catering to high net worth individuals and their families. To learn more, go to woodgate.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, or find more episodes at jasonperera.ca.